Making Peace with Death and Dying by author Judith Johnson is on the show today. She's going to talk about the book, which is a practical guide to liberating ourselves from the death taboo. Next on Healing From Within. Healing from Within with your host, Tony Valen. And welcome to Healing from Within. I'm your host, Tony Valen. This show can be found on our website, TonyValenRadio.com, on Facebook, and on any of your favorite podcast apps. Search Healing from Within with Tony Valen. I created this show to present people that are able to help provide healing, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, and helping with this human experience that we go through called life. The people that have been guests on the show are here to tell a story, their story. When you listen to this story, you find a real person with real experiences that have made them who they are, and they are now on a mission to reach out to the world and reach out to the masses. Judith, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm very excited. Well, I know that's that may not be whatever. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this book that you wrote, Making a Peace with Death and Dying, a practical guide to liberating ourselves from the death taboo. So the first question that came to my mind is, why do you think death became taboo or is labeled as taboo? Well, there, there's a couple of tremendous influences, and I'm going to let me try to summarize them quickly. Okay. One is um, it really dates back in European culture to the Black Plague, which was 1348 to 1352. During that four year period, 50% of the population was wiped out by the Black Plague. And so just imagine, I mean, what we've been through with COVID. Right. Imagine that at 50%. I mean, that's a pretty amazing wipeout rate. Yeah. And um, prior to that, um, you know, death had been kind of more normal in our society. But all of a sudden, it's, it became so scary because we could have a disease like this that could just wipe us out. And um, it's interesting that a lot of people... Um, let me backtrack. Yeah. Um, for about the past 15 years, I have been doing research online of the images that we use in our society about death. And one of them in particular has fascinated me because it dates back to the Black Plague. And it's representative of what the consciousness was. And, you know, it's skulls and crossbones and, you know, the Grim Reaper and all of that. And people would make these drawings, put them on their clothing with the idea that they wanted to um, fool death into thinking, I'm already dead, you can pass over me, okay? So that's one of the psychological roots that is, has been very traumatic and profound in our society, okay? 
Um, secondly, around the time of the Civil War was when the funeral industry burgeoned. Prior to that, we did, you know, people were born at home, people lived at home, and people died at home. And people who are familiar with houses from that time frame are familiar with the parlor room or the two parlor rooms in the front of the house. One of them was for the viewing of, of the deceased. So the actual rituals around death were done in the home. And then during the Civil War was the first time we as a society encountered having a lot of our loved ones far from home when they died. And so embalming became popular to preserve the bodies of our soldiers and bring them home. Okay, well, guess what that did? That was the burgeoning of the funeral industry, which then took further took the rituals of death out of the home and into this place we thought was professional. These are the professionals who deal with death. What that did was it abstracted the experience for us and it became foreign. So if you think about um, as generations went on, death was not in the home. It was, it was something that was moved away. Okay. Yes. Um, similarly, the sick and the elderly have, you know, we have now, we house them outside the home. So all of the experience of dealing with um, the, you know, the disintegration of the physical body and eventual death, um, we've taken, uh, you know, it's kind of like the three monkeys, the see, no, hear, no, speak, no evil. If I can't see it, it's not happening. So that's been in our consciousness. That's, that's really where it comes from. And one other contributing factor is that we have a very dualistic state of consciousness. We look at things and say they're good, they're bad, I like it, I don't like it, and it's all polarized. So, you know, if two people have different points of view, we tend to look at it as I'm right and you're wrong, if you don't agree with me. And it applies to death as well, because we have, you know, we put birth on a pedestal, oh, she's having a baby. You know, isn't that wonderful? But then when somebody's dying, we look at it as the greatest tragedy. So we have polarized life and death in that way. And it's a social construct because there are Eastern societies where they cry when the baby is born because the baby's about to face all the trials and tribulations of life. And they, you know, are jubilant when somebody dies because, oh, they're relieved of this veil of suffering. Right. Wow. Yeah, I was going to mention that. I'm glad you mentioned it because it's true, you know, and uh, I guess that's a different way of looking at things. Yeah. Um, you know, and especially, uh, well, in talking about your book and, and death, um, I'll be honest with you, even me, myself, I don't really like to use the word death. I like to say passed on. And I, I, I guess it's just because it, it just feels a little lighter. But, uh, you know, with, with what happened in our lives, just like, you know, with COVID and everything, how do you think that affected people's thinking of death and how they deal with it? Do you think it made it worse or better? Or what are your thoughts? Um, it made us think about it more because it took us out of our fantasy of death is over there somewhere. Um, it made it more real for us. And um, here's another statistic that fits in this picture is that um, about a third of us die before the age of 65. And we have in our minds, oh, only old people die. No, 
one out of three of us will die before age 65. There'll be people who die as infants, as 20-year-olds. And, um, you know, while you don't like the word death and would like a softer term, that's part of the death taboo, is that discomfort at even the word death. When, you know, it's perfectly normal. It's something that we all do. And yet we, as a society, don't prepare ourselves to face it in a healthy way. Yeah, uh, for sure. I'm telling you. Um, so, yeah, it just seems like uh, death is a very uncomfortable subject to talk about. And I know that when I was uh, before my parents passed, any anything that brought us to the subject of death or discussing it, I did not want to talk about it. I did not want to face it. I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to that reality yet. I know, you know, that it's going to come. And as far as, you know, our definition of old, as I get older, my definition of old changes and it goes yeah. further and further, you know, so to speak. Um, so uh, there are so many books out there talking about death and, and, you know, dying. And what's different about your book that people really should, you know, go to your book? Okay, thanks for asking that. Two things, because it addresses the death taboo and explains why we are so dysfunctional about death, it's not our fault. We've been trained to be that way. And that's, you know, it, it's like takes you off the hook a little bit. But on the other hand, it is up to us each as individuals and as communities to do, to, it, it's effortful to change that. Okay, it takes personal effort. And that leads to the other thing that's unique about my book is it's filled with exercises that are intended to take the reader from a conceptual mentalization about death to really having um, engaging in their own relationship with death and seeing, for example, for you to see that, wow, I can't I'm so uncomfortable even with the word death. That makes my blood pressure rise. You know, that's, that's, pardon me for saying so, that's an example of the dysfunction from the death taboo because we are not at, uh, we're not comfortable with something that's perfectly normal. And so we have to work to counteract that. So the exercises in the book are try, try to very gently take the reader into an engagement of curiosity with, well, how do I feel about death? So for example, if you look in the dictionary at the definition of the word death, it is all about the um, what we consider to be signs of life in a human body, breathing, you know, the brain is functioning, all of that. It is all physiologically based. Life, death is physical. Okay. And yet, you know, from I'm sure in your own exposure and, and a lot of the guests that you have, that many of us believe that there is a part of us that doesn't die when our body dies. Okay. Now, if people aren't exposed to that kind of thinking, then death, um, when if you think about it as just we're just a body with a personality and an ego, then it's like curtain call, it's over. And that's a much um, harsher perspective than what has, you know, what has become, come forward in recent years. I was mentioning the images that I've been researching. In the past five years, we've got new images coming through. And it, I very much attribute it to um, Eben Alexander's book, Proof of Heaven. Yes. And 
he was a he is a neurosurgeon who was absolutely poo-poo of all of this idea that people say about, oh, the light and the tunnel and all this stuff. He said, I can explain that to you through impulses of the nervous system and all of that. And then he had the had that experience and now he's got a different story. So if you um, search the word deaf now, you will see images that are not just black and white skulls and crossbones and scary pictures. You'll also see these kind of images like going towards a light and there'll be pastel colors. That's a much more inviting um, concept um, and comforting than the idea that death is just the body and that's all there is to us. So this gets into the territory of who is I? When you're talking about yourself as a person, do you see yourself as purely a physical being or do you um, have a sense of being a spiritual being as well? In other words, you know, human and divine. Are there both components from your point of view or not? It's right. a very important question. Yeah. Um, so with COVID, you know, we've had deaths uh, happen to people, um, like you just said, dying younger uh, suddenly people that you would never think would have passed do you think that happening in our lifetime to us impacted more fear and death or more acceptance i mean it's in our face it's in our face yeah you're right um and i th and i think as a backdrop to that question okay um we have we're in a tremendous transition in our relationship with death as a society. Um, and it's slow going, but when you think about the world before hospice and after hospice came onto the scene, um, a lot of people, when they hear the word hospice, it's like, no, I don't want hospice because to them they say hospice is death. But in reality, for those who will open to the idea, they find out hospice is like being abducted by a bunch of angels who understand how to do death and aren't scared by it and will comfort you through the end and help you understand what you're going through. So that's going on in the background. OK, but in terms of has co I think COVID has really um, traumatized a lot of people in but in so doing. It's made death more real. And I think that's good. It kind of shakes us out of our fantasy that, oh, I'm not going to die. I'm young. Right. You know? Yeah. And no, the I... same thing is what we're watching, you know, right now in the Ukraine. In Ukraine, it's like, wow, one day they have a normal, nice life. And the next day they're on the run for their lives. Very scary. Yeah. Can you believe that? I mean, it's just... Uh... It's a reality again. It's a reality that we, uh, I guess it, it can happen, but we choose to look the other way. Mm -hmm. um, so when we choose to look at death in a more healthy way, not as a, you know, that like, for instance, me not wanting to use the word death. Right. Um, how do you think, how does that look? How does someone get to that point? And, and you know, what, what does that, that acceptance of death look like? Well, for some of us, and I'll speak from my own experience and, and why I wrote this book. Um, this book is the fulfillment of a deathbed promise I made to my mother when she was dying in December of 2006. 
And my mother grabbed my wrist and she said, promise me that you will write about what we've learned. And I mean, you know, basically what she was saying is what we've learned about getting old and dying in a society that's in denial about that. Because, you know, a lot of doctors, for example, you know, our medical system is just starting to have um, palliative care and hospice being used as comfort care for people for whom nothing further can be done medically. Up until the introduction of those, and, and that was not, 25 years ago, that was not a legitimate medical practice. Now it is. That's a big change. because and But yet still, many, many doctors who have been schooled in the past were schooled in the, in the state of mind that says, I'm in the business of making things better. So their scope of their work did not include ha- having patients die, which is for them, a personal failure. I failed to get my patient better. So psychologically, it's very, it was very difficult for a lot of doctors and a lot of them, even, even suggesting that a patient, that it's time for a patient to consider hospice, a lot of doctors are not comfortable doing that because they're still in the old consciousness of, well, you know, I don't want to face that I, that I'm helpless. Well, yeah. So in helping uh, in the book and, and what you talk about is you talk about helping people, you know, uh, and, and well, vice versa, help each other with the death process. How how does someone help someone with, you know, with the death process uh, by and the, I, I don't I guess I don't know how to ask the question because I'll ask it for me. Mm-hmm. I'm a very tell it like it is type of person. I think it's important to let people know where you're coming from and what you're talking about. No guessing game. Right. So that there's a truth there. Um, so how do you talk to people that are passing, you know, like they don't look so good sometimes. And do you just go in there and, you know, do you, do you tell them, Oh God, you look great. And you know, they do. No. So no, that's no, that's the fear of death being expressed because what we tend to do with the fear of death, what we tend to do is we tell ourselves, I'm going to protect him or her by not bringing that up. But really what we're doing is protecting ourselves from encountering our fear. Okay. And one of the most important things that my book is about is encouraging people to talk to each other. You know, it's the strangest thing that, you know, to go into, when you know that somebody you love is dying and you go in the room and say, oh, your color looks good today. That is a statement of denial. Now think about if you were the person lying in the bed dying, that tells you, oh, this loved one of mine is not comfortable. I better not talk about what I'd like to talk about. Like maybe your loved one has some, would like to talk. I mean, it's a terribly isolating thing to be in denial that this person that you love is dying. And it really opens the door for conversation to just say things like, gosh, I, it, it's just, I can't believe that we're at this point. And how do you feel? What's it like for you? Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to talk about what you're feeling? You know, ask them. I mean, wouldn't you prefer to be asked? I, yes, yes, I would, but I have to tell you that, uh, yeah, when when you put it that way, yes, because 
if I knew then what I know now, I would have yeah. been in a different frame of mind when my mother was passing because at that time the and and I feel so guilty because it was all about me. How am I going to live without you? You know, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to function. And she was my best friend. And I, yeah. I always say proudly, I was a mama's boy and she was everything to me and, and to lose her was devastating to me. But I think back on it now and I think to myself, why did I do that? I, I think it would have been so much better if I did exactly what, what you just said, you know. Right, but you did the you did the very best you knew how at the time. Let, let me share a, a, an example. Um, for whatever reason, I, I rolled up my sleeves. I mean, my mother and I shared a home, and she was my best friend. We shared a home for the last nine years of her life. Six months before she died, I was in the living room with my back to where she was, and she fell backwards down a flight of stairs, cracked her head open, and all of a sudden, we're in trauma zone. You know, I had never been through anything like that. I had no idea what to do. And I was lucky that my mother was an art, was a nurse. And she said to me, elevate my head. So I went and grabbed a pillow from the sofa, you know, put your hand on where the blood is coming out here and on my elbow and call 911. <laughs> Yeah, she guided me of what to do. I was so lucky. But every day I went through the days clueless of what the territory was that I was in until hospice got involved, because then I had experts who guided me and cared about my well-being as well as my mother's. OK, but until that, all I had was my love for her and my desire to do the best I could for her. And sometimes I didn't do a very good job, but I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I really, I, I did the very best I could. Could I do better now? Absolutely. I know so much more now, but here's an example. My brother who absolutely adored our mother, he lived uh, five hours away and every one to two weeks, he would drive down to our house to be of help but he could not bear seeing our mother dying. And so he would fill the bird feeders. He would say, oh, let me go get lunch. What, what kind of sandwich would you like? You know, he would try to be helpful in the background. And I remember I got to the point when, when she went into a coma the last nine days and my brother decided, well, gee, he said, well, I've got a life to lead. I, don't, I can't just wait around here, but he was, it, it, he couldn't handle it. And a lot of people can't. And he and I, I was so mad at him and disappointed in him. But a year later, we spoke and he confessed to me how disappointed he was in himself. He said, I just couldn't do it. I was so impressed that you could do that and so grateful because I just couldn't do it. But about five years later, he started volunteering at hospice to overcome those feelings of his. So we all have work to do. Yeah. When do you think is a good time to start thinking about end of life issues? <laughs> You're going to be surprised by this answer. If you are 18 years old or older, okay, you have the legal right to speak for yourself. 
Prior to that, your parents get to make decisions about things like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let me talk about the three things. You know, if you want to overcome your fear of death, prepare, make, make, think about what matters to you. I've seen so many, because I, you know, I'm also a chaplain at my hospital and I've seen so many sad stories where people did not have, have legal documents set up about what to do when I get sick and, and I'm dying. Okay. And there's three areas that we really all need to make, make legal documents about and really think about, well, what do I want? One of them is end of life care. So if, if, I, if it is determined that I look like I'm dying, what do I want them to do? Now, I know people who say, bring on every piece of life-saving equipment you have. I want every tube, I want everything, okay? And then there are people like me who say, if I'm there, if I'm at that point, please just let me go with dignity and grace. It's a normal thing to die. And when it's my turn, let me go, okay? Now that's hard. It's a hard thing to respect. But if you think through things like that, I mean, there's, there's wonderful information online. And if you go to your, your state, these things, these particular documents, whether they're called advanced healthcare directives or healthcare proxy, well, what happens is you appoint a person who you have spoken to who has agreed to serve you in this way. And what it means is I give you permission and I'm going to educate you about what I want, that in the event that I can't speak for myself, you step in and tell them what I want. Okay. So, and that you can change your healthcare proxy tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Anyone that has a different date supersedes you know, up past ones. But the reason I say age 18 and older, be, because we have the opportunity to have a voice in the matter. And it's kind of like we have the right to vote. Well, do you vote or don't you? You know, are you taking advantage of, of what your responsibilities and opportunities are as a human being? Okay. Or are you leaving it to other people? So, Healthcare proxy and end of life. And the reason I say again from 18 is you could be in surgery because you broke your ankle and something could happen and they need to make a decision. So are you going to leave it to your parents or somebody else to make those decisions legally for you? Or have you given somebody that authority? And it might be your parents, but it's your choice. Okay. The other two areas are what to do with my money and my stuff. Okay, so a will or a trust. And a lot of people rebel and say, oh, I don't need to do that. I'm young. Or they say, I don't have anything. But you know what you do. And what happens is if you don't express your wishes for however humble a, a gathering of things you have, then you leave it in the hands of your loved ones when they're traumatized because they just lost you. And that's not very kind. Okay. And then the third thing that is the least frequently done is what preferences you have about end of life rituals, you know, like a funeral, a memorial service. Some people have really strong opinions. Others say, do what you want. I'll be gone. I don't care. Gotcha. So if some of my uh, viewers and listeners happen to be parents that lost a child, how do you think we could help them with the death process when 
well, you know, you lose a child. When they've lost a child, um, listen to them, bear witness to their truth, ask them if they want to talk about it. Do not do not tell them they shouldn't feel the way they feel. Encourage them to get grief count, excuse me, grief counseling, because it's a traumatic experience. And most people have not, most of us don't really know how to manage our emotions very well. Um, you know, some of us just get angry, some of us stuff them down, you know, with drugs or alcohol or food or depression. And um, because we don't have a, a good track record as a society in handling feelings, we really need to encourage somebody who's struggling to get help. So that's, that's what I would do. And, and love them and ask, how, ask them. Don't decide for them what you think they should do or feel. Let them take the lead and let them know you're a safe place. Right. What about uh, when you are the parent and you are wanting to discuss death with your child who happens to have cancer or something and you know that they're scared or they don't understand what's going on? How do you have that hard discussion with your child? That's a great question. And there's a couple of things I would say. If you don't know how, first thing I would do is I would Google, how do I tell my child they have cancer? Okay, do some research. Call your local hospice, ask them for some advice, okay? Use the resources that are available. Talk to the nurses and the doctors, okay? Um, and decide whether you wanna have the conversation one-on-one -on -one or are there other people who should be there for the conversation? But it's better to speak than not to speak. Even that we're always trying to prevent people from suffering. It's like, I don't want to talk to him about that. It's going to upset him. Well, maybe it's more upsetting because he suspects that he has it and you're not talking to him. Because you can be a comfort to your child, but you can't be a comfort until you open your mouth and say, I, I need you to know that the doctors are saying there's nothing more that they can do. And I want you to know I'm going to be here with you every step of the way. And I'm going to have you surrounded by my love. And I will do whatever I can to help you through this, you know, and, and ask the child, what are your thoughts and feelings? Don't rush it, but try to pace the conversation and ask them because, you know, it's interesting in the spiritual tradition that I am involved in, we speak about the laws of spirit and the laws of spirit are really about states of consciousness above those that are run by the ego. And our ego is managing everything out here and, and trying to win and have more toys than anybody else and all of that. But when you lift, get altitude above that state of mind, the first thing you have to do is accept what is going on. Doesn't mean you like it or you want it to be so, but it's a matter of, for example, the parent with a child who's diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's like that, per that parent before having that conversation needs to work on their own inner feelings about this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. It's the last thing I wanted to happen and it's happening. It is really happening. I need support. My child's going to need support. So to be honest and take your blinders off and dive in and rescue the situation the best you can.
because a lot of people hide because they're uncomfortable. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have time to come visit you. Well, that's BS. You're not making it a priority because you're uncomfortable about it. And time is of the essence when somebody's dying. And so I always say, lead with your heart. Yes, it's hard, but walk in the room and say, I love you. I'm so happy to see you today or whatever is an honest expression. And sometimes you don't need any words. You just need to, you know, ask, can I touch you? And just kind of softly, gently rub their hand so they can feel the human contact. Because dying people get so isolated because of our fear. Let your love lead. Don't forget that that person who's dying, if they're a loved one, they're a loved one before they're a dying person. That is very true. There, there's somebody you love to, you know, and you're going to love them beyond their death. Keep the love alive. When you are the one preparing for that difficult conversation, you are not the one that's passing, but the child, your parent, whoever is passing. Can you give us any advice on how to become stronger or keep it together? How to be able to present exactly what you just said without falling apart? How do you find that strength to have that conversation? Yeah, the first thing is to tend to your own um, shock and distress. Handle your own emotions away from the child if you can so that you can release that. Because, I mean, imagine it's like the cork... You've got to take the cork off and let those emotions flow. You need to allow yourself to come to terms with the reality so you can get to the place of accepting the doctors really can't do anything else. What do we do now? You know, and it's it's you have to deal with your denial, move past that. You have to take responsibility to be the best parent you can for your child. And yes, you're in distress but your child's the one who's got a, 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 clock, a, a timer ticking. And you have to get there to be in support as quickly as you can. And it might mean setting your own emotions aside and saying, I, I can't handle this yet, but I have to be there for my baby. This is not easy stuff. I don't pretend that this is easy, but it's easier if we keep our love alive and we open our mouths and we speak honest and truthful with each other. Don't pretend everything's fine. It's, you know, the person is dying. You know, it, and one of the very important things is with a, a dying person, like, for example, my mother spent nine days in an, apparently in a coma the last nine days of her life. But it's important to know that when the person is transitioning into death, there's a lot going on where, where there is a where they are disconnecting some somehow from the physical level, okay? And you know, systems are shutting down. But in their withdrawal, there is a withdrawal from us as well. Okay, they have to disconnect from our their relationships with us. And it's very important to understand that hearing is the last sense to go they are likely to be able to hear what you're saying. So don't think that because their eyes are closed, they don't hear you. They probably hear every word you say in the room. 
bear that in mind and speak loving, kind words. And don't allow other family, don't allow family squabbles to take place in the patient's room. Make it a sacred sanctuary. Make it as sacred a space for this to happen as possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So in writing this book and in going, you know, you said it started with your with your mother and a promise that you made to your mom. Uh, do you think you found your purpose? Oh my God, yes. But it, but it's interesting. It's not as it's not directly that. Okay. Um, my my book. I have two. I I think of it as I have two purposes. One purpose that I have is my own spiritual development. That's my most important purpose in my personal life. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my relationship with others, my work is all about helping other people raise the level of consciousness from which they're living their lives. So instead of being like this, read my book, confront your fears, you know, don't be afraid to hurt. Just breathe your way through it. It's like, be responsible, be brave. Don't live a tiny little life. Wow. Learn, you know, learn, learn how to get above your ego. Right. Is this the only book you've written or are there other books that you've written? Um, this is my third book. Um, my first two books were about the wedding ceremony because I'm an interfaith minister. And oh, okay. um, at the time when I wrote my these two, the first one anyway, I re realized that there was nothing out there that did a good job of teaching people how to design the wedding ceremony if they were doing it outside of a particular religion that gives the definition for the ritual. Um, and so I wanted to teach people how to bring their hearts together and create ceremonies that honored the truth of what they believe and what matters to them. And that's why I wrote that book. It's called The Wedding Ceremony Planner, The Essential Guide to the Most Important Part of Your Wedding Day. And then years later, I realized that one of the biggest struggles that couples have when they're getting married is about, well, should we do, should we write our own vows? Should we do traditional vows? Should we do vows that are repeat after me and all of that? And so I laid that all out. I, I wrote a second book called How to Write Meaningful Wedding Vows. Okay. Then this Making Peace with Death and Dying is my third book. And I'm currently writing my fourth book, which will come out a year from the fall. And it's called Being You, a user's manual. And it is all about human consciousness and how to lift our consciousness up so that we're not victimized by the dysfunctions that are present in our society, that we get brave. Great. Where can people go to get more information about you? And your book. My website, judithjohnson.com. Um, and I also want to mention that um, in addition to my writing, I also mentor people. I mentor individuals and couples, but I also mentor people who are facing end of life issues, whether it is the mother who has to tell her child that they're dying, or it is a grieving person who has lost their partner of 50 years. Um, or it could be people who know I'm resisting doing my end of life planning documents. Can you help me get over the hump, you know, or family squabbles. Um, I work with all of those situations to make, to bring more grace and ease and loving into the forefront when death is present. 
Wonderful. So in my final questions to you, uh, one of the questions I always ask all my guests are, if you could change one thing in your life as of right now, what would that be? Or would you change anything? You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I'm 74 years old, and it's taken me this long to learn what I know now. And it's super important to me that my life has come into an, an order where I spend my time helping others. And it's so gratifying to see, for example, a couple that have been at each other's throats to help them learn the tools to how to be loving and kind to each other and be in partnership because they didn't know how. They did the best they could. So, you know, I, I really like the life I have. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. And actually, that's the answer I always get from my guests. So, really? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So Judith Johnson, the author of Making Peace with Death and Dying, A Practical Guide to Liberating Ourselves from the Death Taboo. Judith, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, my, my pleasure, Tony. And you asked such good questions. Thank you. Thank you.